Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 145th show. Today's guest is Gabe Karp, author of Don't Get Mad at Penguins, which I love the title. Gabe, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So, Gabe, let's just start off with you telling us about your professional background. Sure. Uh, I spent the first 10 years of my career as a trial lawyer, a litigator in court uh, doing uh, commercial litigation, which is like business divorce um, and class action litigation and even legal malpractice, suing other lawyers for screwing up. So, you know, talk about conflict. Um, that That's a that's conflict on steroids. Um and then I, I left the private practice of law and joined a small startup, uh, and we grew it to one of the world's leading digital promotions companies. And then after a, a successful exit there, went on to venture capital um, and, and focused on uh, technology startups primarily. Uh, I'm on the board, currently on the boards of about four, five companies, actually five companies uh, across um, Detroit Venture Partners, which is a VC in uh, in Detroit, their portfolio, and I'm a, a uh, operating partner there, as well as a VC fund called LightBank, based out of Chicago, and I'm on a uh, board of one of their companies. Who's the uh, one that runs the Detroit fund? So that's part of Dan Gilbert's family office, the founder of Quicken Loans, oh, now Rocket. Okay. Excuse me, Rocket Mortgage. Okay. There's yeah. another Detroit fund, and I'm just forgetting his name. And we had him on the show, and he's written a couple books, a couple oh. of bestsellers. I'm wondering who and, that is. And I'm just drawing a blank, but I'll, I'll find oh, out. Oh, maybe you. it's uh, Josh Linkner. Yes, that's it. Yes. So, so Josh, oh, Josh was the founder of uh, of Detroit, one of the founders of Detroit Venture Partners, and was at the that's startup. That's what I thought. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, why did you write this book and why this unusual title? You know, I love this title. So um, I was once talking to somebody years ago uh, about a problem they were having. And um, I realized that they were in a cycle of conflict. And um, sorry. With, they were in a cycle of conflict that was like repeating over and over again. And they were dealing with who they expecting them to do things that they simply couldn't do. And I knew, um, I knew the other person, this person wasn't confiding in me, but I knew that the other person was not enjoying the conflict either and that they were having a hard time. And I, I basically told the person, Hey, like you keep getting mad at this person and getting mad at him is like expecting, you know, getting mad at a penguin because it can't fly. Um, they just can't do what you want them to do. And you keep expecting them to do that. And it's frustrating you and it's, and it's just pissing you off. So stop. And that's why uh, you named it, uh, you know, using the penguins as a metaphor. Yeah. 
Um, I liked it. I saw it in the book. Yeah. So how do you define healthy conflict? Well, healthy conflict, I, I guess I should say conflict in life is unavoidable. Um, there's no, there's no way to get through life without experiencing conflict. Um, but healthy conflict, those are the things that anytime you've achieved something worthwhile, anytime you uh, have a great accomplishment, um, you know, anytime that you work through a difficult issue with somebody and you come out the other side better for it, um, that's because you engage conflict in a healthy way. That's what healthy conflict looks like. You know, when you think about business, um, in business, when you have healthy conflict, you just move faster as a company. You innovate faster. You outperform competition. When performance issues come up with team members and without drama and you move on, people grow in their careers faster. When a problem happens with a client, you embrace the conflict. You don't avoid it. You don't get defensive. Um, you kind of, you not only embrace the conflict, but you leverage it to deepen the relationship, to increase trust, and to basically get to a point where both sides are elevated much faster than, than if they, um, than if you had dealt with it in a, in a destructive, toxic way. I think most of us try to avoid conflict, especially guys do as much as possible. And particularly in any kind of relationship where we just want it solved and won't don't want any of the drama that goes along with it. So what does toxic conflict look like? So uh, toxic conflict is when in, I'll just keep the context in companies. And by the way, I should preface this by saying that uh, the, the lessons in the talk about um, it's in this context, those same patterns play out in personal lives too. So there's no difference, but for example, I'll just keep it uh, focused on the business stuff. Um, in organizations where toxic conflict runs rampant, uh, team engagements are painful. Client relationships are strained. Uh, individual careers suffer. Um, I, I recently did a quick video that I call the stress tax. Um, this, the, stress, the stress tax is being levied uh, on many companies every day. And it is the single greatest cost that a company pays as a result of toxic conflict. Uh, because... The toxic toxicity in the culture creates stress and anxiety, and people are um, distracted at work. Their energy is consumed by anger they feel because a coworker isn't carrying their weight, making their job more difficult, or not a, a team member who's trying to take, take credit for their own work, or their energy is consumed by the fear they feel of actually losing their job because of toxic leadership. And- um, when we think about leaders, you know, a lot of this stuff is considered soft skills. So heavily metrics-driven leaders don't pay a lot of attention to the value of how to navigate conflict in a more healthy way. However, when you think about it in terms of a stress tax and how much it's costing the the corporation or the the any organization, um, you know, you can put it in these terms that many leaders think that in order to increase capacity, they have to hire more people. Because the people that they currently have are coming to work and their focus is distracted. Sometimes the stress tax is so bad, it makes people sick to the point where they literally don't even show up to work. Or they do show up tired and focused on things other than the job at hand. So the leader thinks, 
I got to increase capacity. I got to hire more people. When the reality is they can dramatically increase capacity at a fraction of the cost just by eliminating the stress tax and turn it into a dividend. So those are, I guess that's a long answer as to what toxic conflict looks like. I've experienced it in organizations. I once ran an organization where I poured to a chairman that it was so toxic that every day I was praying that the train would derail so I wouldn't have to go into the office. And I eventually got out of that by fixing most of the major problems and saying, we need a new CEO who's better at interacting with the chairperson who was one of the founders than I was. But it was a horrible, horrible situation. I was getting ulcers from experiencing it. How do people detox their mind and how do you detox an organization? So uh, that's a that's a daunting task for many people. I guess I should say that intention is really important. You know, um, detoxing is an action verb. It's not a, pa- a passive one. So it does need to be done with conscious intent. Um, and many people say, well, you know, gosh, detoxing my mind, you know, that means I got to reframe everything, change my entire perspective on life. And that just sounds so overwhelmingly difficult that people don't even try. Um, I think it is much easier to take things piecemeal. So don't think about detoxing your mind. Think about detoxing one interaction that you have with one person. You know, if you find yourself in, maybe it's someone you know well, and you get into a a repetitive cycle of some conflict, um, think about it and think about the toxins that come into play in that interaction. And just by thinking about it, that alone, can help you reframe and change focus. That can um, give you sort of the the little space you need to step out of a an inner uh, an instinctive response like a fight or flight instinct, where you've got things like adrenaline all flooding through your veins that are really driving your behavior in an unproductive way. Um, and being intentional about it uh, allows you to disrupt that instinctive response. And and look, there's a whole book uh, the how to detox, you know, your mind and an organization. Um, so I don't want to go too long. I would say though, that from an organizational standpoint, there are some simple, straightforward things to be done to make conflict a healthy thing. And I'll just talk about one of them. Uh, many companies, uh, shy away from conflict. They view it as a bad thing and something to at all costs. They also have heavy emphasis on, flawless execution. So mistakes are frowned upon and seen as badges of shame. And in cultures like that, oftentimes, um, bad news is discouraged, even contradictory opinions. So when there's a heavy emphasis on emphasis on that, if somebody makes a mistake or sees a problem, the amount of effort and energy it takes to like raise your hand and say, hey, we got a problem over there. That's far more energy than it takes to just keep your mouth shut, keep your head down and hope for the best. Um, but one thing you can do is you can kind of flip the script and you can have a regularly scheduled meeting where the focus and purpose of the meeting is to call out problems, raise red flags, get things off your chest where people aren't doing their job if they remain silent. And what that does is it removes the social stigma that people feel because nobody wants to be the source of conflict. No one wants to be viewed as the person who's always creating problems. Um, so if it's a job requirement and you, you 
are required to raise problems. Well, now you're just doing your job. And if you have a regularly scheduled meeting or you just carve out time of a meeting that's already happening, where that's where the focus is, signals to everybody that says, hey, this in this organization, in this culture, we want to call this stuff out. We want to address these problems head on and we don't want people to shy away from it. I think that's always a problem. And, and I've worked for CEOs who didn't want to know about any of the problems. One in particular who just said, I only want to hear good news. So if you got bad news, don't even bring it. But I had a policy that if you didn't tell me bad news, that's how you got fired. So I felt it was much better to head these things head on for everybody in the organization. Why do you say building a company from ground up involves a lot of conflict? Uh, because you, you know, anytime you build a company from the ground up, you're at you're from a cold start, you've got headwinds. You've got a competitive marketplace. You've got the challenges of finding the right people. Um, you've got the challenges of setting the direction and the vision of the company that's going to continually change as you as you grow and evolve. Um, people are going to have differences of opinions. It's just it's very fertile ground for disagreement. Um, I would also say that uh, anytime you know you embark on such an endeavor like that, you're going to make mistakes. Uh, and sometimes they're going to be really big mistakes uh, and and uh, mistakes usually <laughs> promote a lot of conflict um, because sometimes mistakes make people upset. Sometimes mistakes hurt clients or hurt team members. Um, and rightfully, they are annoyed and frustrated and they feel the conflict. So it's just it's just unavoidable. Uh, I would say that anything worthwhile, any worthwhile accomplishment, achievement, Anytime you're going to create value, you do that in the face of conflict and navigating the conflict. Um, if you're able to find yourself in a situation where there's absolutely no conflict, um, you're probably not challenging yourself and you're not challenging the people around you and you're not creating value that isn't already there. You know, and that sounds like relationships as well. Yes. You know, I think that the the value that's created in business is created on top of the human relationships, um, customer relationships, client, you know, uh, corporate real lender relationships, team member relationships. If it's a bunch of robots working together with no emotion at all, then uh, my book isn't going to have much value. This message isn't going to have much value. No one's going to run into any problems. But if you're a human being dealing with other human beings, um, you necessarily are going to encounter conflict. Here's a question from the audience. How do you deal with companies which they have very defensive approach uh, uh, towards their clients who raise complaints? So that's a um, that's a very common problem um, because in just to just to analyze the problem a little bit, one of the sources of that defensiveness is that if the company thinks that it it actually will honestly acknowledge that they made a mistake or they have some, you know, that they did something wrong that the client is upset about. They think that will give the client the ammunition it needs to um, cancel the contract or ask for a refund or a reduction in price. So it, that that's kind of the source of that. Um, and that, that culture, you know, kind of feeds, infects everything. Um, and my approach to that is to, 
the heart of the concern. Well, if you're worried, like if we're going to be defensive here, let's examine why we're being so defensive. It's because we think that if we aren't defensive, it's going to hurt us financially. But let's kind of take a step back and look at this logically. If we are defensive and we continue to the, go be combative with our clients, eventually they're just going to leave us because people don't want to work with people who are combative with them. So while we may uh, suffer perhaps even a short-term financial loss, it's much smaller. It's a much smaller cost to us than the cost of losing a client entirely. Um, and I would say that, you know, I mentioned before, mistakes are inevitable. Um, and companies that get really defensive about complaints that clients have, if the complaint is about a mistake, um, that's and the company is defensive, that's because the company's culture probably values flawless execution above all else. Uh, but we're humans and mistakes are inevitable. So any culture that relies upon flawless execution is inherently flawed. Um, but here's the thing, and this is the, the, the currency that is probably the most valuable currency I've seen in business. Um, it's integrity and it's accountability. And while quality execution is important and absolutely should be honored, um, mistakes are inevitable. And one true test of character is how we react once we recognize that we've made a mistake. And that's the opportunity to demonstrate the character of the organization. So when an organization in recognition of a mistake gets defensive and tries to deny it or put it back on the client that it's their fault, well, that means that's the character of the organization. But if instead accountability is something that's honored and the company steps up and says to the client, we made this, this is our fault. We need to be held accountable and we're going to do whatever it takes to make this right. Well, when that happens, the client realizes they now have someone they can trust. And if you can work through that, then your relationship with that client is so much stronger than it would have been had you executed flawlessly in the first place. So I think the way to combat it is to point all of that out. How long did it take you to become good at this? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Some people in my family might suggest that I'm not good at it, <laughs> but uh, but it, it, it took it took years. Uh, it started out as a as a when I was litigating cases, um, and I I at some point in the evolution of a lawsuit, you're at war with somebody, but at some point it comes time to explore settlement opportunities, and that's when you need to really. Settle thing, bring the temperature down, diffuse the conflict, and get to a point where you can interact. And there were times early on in my career when I tried to do, I really struggled. And I started to examine why. Like I looked at the different personalities involved and the and the communication styles and how they either improved or worsened the situation. And I just being thoughtful about that and conscious about that and taking a step back. And as opposed to being inside the conflict, I, I would step to the side and look at it as more of an observer. Um, that's when I started to realize that conflict was something that was a tool that could be leveraged. Uh, and then things kind of built from there. Uh, I, I did realize that I was more comfortable in the midst of conflict in business than the people around me. So I really worked on articulating some tactics that other people could also adopt that would be easy for them to incorporate into their own lives and um, and that they were repeatable. 
and easy. And, and, you know, that I start to view conflict management, not as like a, ta- a special talent that you're born with, but rather a skill that anyone can practice and, and get better at. I agree with you. you definitely can uh, acquire that as a skill and people who ultimately have great success end up learning how to really work that to their benefit in a positive way for everybody around them. You wrote that, uh, oh, a question from the audience. How do you stay calm in the middle of a conflict? That is the, uh, that's a tough one. Um, I think that's very helpful to understand why people are not calm in the midst of conflict. What gives rise to that? And then when you can look at those factors, then you can start approaching them. So very simply, um, you know, we're, we're socialized from a young age to shy away from conflict. Uh, we soften bad news. We sugarcoat feedback. We're taught if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Um, and that creates a just a, a social stigma of, you know, conflict feels uncomfortable. And then we've got, you know, a billion years of evolution hard-coded into our DNA to, to with a fight or flight response to conflict. Um, so when conflict happens, uh, your amygdala, which is a gland in, in the brain, two of them kicks into high gear and, and gets active. That, that fight or flight response gets triggered and you have, uh, hormones like adrenaline and cortisol that flood your system. And that creates, that is not calm. Um, that will increase your heart rate. That will make your palms sweaty. That will, your breathing becomes rapid and shallow as you take in more oxygen, preparing to like fight or, or run away if you have to. Um, you know, th- those responses are are designed to allow you to survive a threat, a physical threat out in the wild. And when you are in the jungle, those responses will save your life. But when you're in a business interaction or at a negotiation, those will drive really poor uses of conflict. So recognizing that process and understanding it to begin with is a great start. Because then when that happens, you can realize um, and learn your own physiology and know, you know, and you can you can't really anticipate when you're going to get triggered because it's a surprise. You just don't know what's going to happen. But you can anticipate that you will be triggered into fight or flight. Um, and it doesn't matter what's going to trigger. You don't have to worry about what triggers you. You just need to recognize uh, the physiological symptoms. When, when the hair in the back of your neck stands up or your breathing or heart rate start to increase, you can stop and just take a beat and say, you know, oh, this is that thing that that guy Gabe was talking about on the, on the Zoom cast. Um, you know, this is my physiology dealing with a threat. but. I'm not a caveman dealing with a saber-toothed tiger. I'm just dealing with beings. So there's no physical threat here. And that recognition, you know, I would say this. There are lots of things you can do. The first thing that I would suggest, if you've never done it before, recognize that it's happening and take just one breath. Just one breath. And that will be enough to create some space to pull you out of an instinctive response and into intellectual awareness. and then you can start applying some tactics and tools that you can learn about uh, in my book, Shameless Plug, or, you know, any any of the millions of, you know, conflict management things that are out there. So I like this. You wrote that schools invest a lot of time teaching math and English, but nothing on conflict resolution. 
Uh, I, I thought that was really important what you wrote because we had over 500 murders in Philadelphia alone, and most all of them deal with conflict resolution. That one of the things that you hear all the time from uh, teachers and parents is that if the kids understood how to deal with conflict, there'd be a lot less uh, dead bodies. Uh, so uh, what uh, what do you think should be taught? Sure. I mean, I would say those are extreme examples and they, 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 they you know, school shootings cover lots of other issues as well. But but in a general well, rule, I think about the school shootings, because that's somebody who's mentally uh, has a, a mental issues that need to be worked on. These are things where, uh, especially in inner cities where kids get into an argument about something and it's not solved by reason, it's solved by a gun or a knife or or some instrument that's going to put the other person out permanently. Yes. So, yeah, I think in terms of school curriculum, um, there there are a number of things to be done, but uh, certainly um, teaching by example is always a great thing. So there, there are no shortages of great examples of people who successfully navigated very difficult conflicts. Um, in a in a respectful, responsible, nonviolent way. So merely giving kids access to that history is extremely helpful, and it can provide an example that they may uh, that you know strive to to reach themselves one day. Um, and talking through issues and and you know here's the other thing: ego in kids becomes. It's a real factor in middle school and high school. Um, you know, these are these are kids that are kind of like trying to find their place in the world and that they have some sense of value. And the the lowest common denominator is physical power, uh, physical strength. And that all that you know, many kids know because they just haven't had exposure to other things. So I think calling out the fact that. Resorting to physical violence is actually the weakest form of power. You know, if you think about uh, from a political science standpoint, you know, the most power is the person, the, the person or entity with the most power exerts that power through influence. They're able to, to appeal to another person because they, they're so powerful and say, hey, I have a suggestion here. And because of their power, the people are willing to listen to their suggestion. The next, the next tier down would be manipulation. And the next tier down from that would be threatening physical violence. And the next tier down from that is actual violence. So to let kids understand that those who resort to violence are actually the weakest um, will help leverage their own egos to move away from violence. That's an example. Another, yeah, it's good, a good example. Another question from the audience is, um, how do you deal with people who use conflict to create chaos in order to control the other side? Uh, so, yeah, I've, I've, uh, well, I was, I used to be a litigator, so I dealt with a lot of people who did that. <laughs> um, you know, there are people that are, I, I should say this, there are people who are very skilled at conflict management and use it in malevolent ways. They, they use it for, for bad, not for good. Um, but I think one way to neutralize the effects of someone who's using those tactics is to call out the tactics. Um, I have been in 
I've been in interactions, in group interactions, where there's one person who's trying to just stir the pot and create, you know, uh, create distraction amongst everybody because for whatever reason it serves their purpose in in, in whatever the details are. And um, a very effective way to to address that is to call it out, like shine a big bright light on it and say. Hey, you know, and, and there you can do this as aggressively or as um, non or in as non-confrontational way as you want, and the situation will determine which where on that spectrum you you're gonna you're gonna go. But I would say that um, saying to somebody, "Hey, look, we're we're I know we're all trying to work this out. Um, the comments that you're making are actually." pitting these two other people against each other. And I would rather we take a more productive approach. And instead of getting these two people to blame each other, um, let's, let's instead make the problem itself our enemy and let's all join together and just attack that problem. Uh, and again, I apologize because it's so fact specific to deal with that. So I'm, I'm being a little generic, but it's an approach. Call out the tactic that the other that the person is using to stir up conflict. Well, we know a politician who does a lot of that, and I guess people have been calling them out for years here. So uh, a next question from the audience is, uh, what if you raise a concern and the colleague says things like, sorry, you feel that way, and don't acknowledge or address the concern? Well, uh, if it's a if it's a colleague, you know, I think you can, Go right back and say, um, "Listen, I, I uh, thank you for acknowledging that I feel a certain way. Um, that's less important to me than us dealing with the concern itself. Um, so, uh, you're saying you're sorry that I feel a certain way is helpful to some extent, but it's not getting us any closer to resolving this actual issue. Can we please focus on the issue itself?" Is one is one example. Yeah, a lot of times people try to mollify you by saying, yes, I hear you, and then go on without addressing it. And so how do you get them back on? So that I think that your answer was helpful. Another question from the audience, who is your conflict resolution hero, the best examples in history or the business world? Well, that's a great one. Um, I'm actually a fan of Henry Kissinger. Uh, who was Secretary of State in the early 70s, uh, who basically um, negotiated the end of the Vietnam War uh, and was instrumental in opening up relations between uh, the United States and China. And I've, I've heard him uh, talk a lot. Uh, and he just, you know, I, I, I think he and people like him are very thoughtful about their approach to conflict. They see the, they, they don't see, they don't see the haze of conflict and, and all the emotion around it. They see the individual components of what, what builds up to conflict. Um, and they're able to compartmentalize and um, really isolate their focus into the things that matter. And they, and, you know, and they don't get distracted by the emotion of it or the, the injustice of it, um, which by the way, are all natural, human, natural, normal human reactions. So I don't fault people who, who do feel emotion um, and get distracted by them, but 
you know, it, it is extraordinary when, when people at that level can rise above it and not only not allow the conflict to be negative, but actually leverage the conflict into real positive results. There are four conflict toxins, according to your book, uh, anger, fear, ego, and judgment. How does one use those four toxins in a positive way? So, yeah, th- there, and I should say there are other toxins. Those are just, those aren't the only four. Um, and I, I would put it this way. That, so anger, fear, ego, and judgment are naturally occurring things in human interaction. And within an, in a certain optimal range, they are healthy. So for example, um, the optimal amount of fear, you know, if, if you're in a situation, uh, you know, you're looking down a dark alley at 2 a.m. and that's your shortest, you know, getting through that alley is your shortest destination. Well, fear will keep you out of that alley. And that's probably a good thing. Um, maybe a more practical example, you know, if you're at work and something happens and you feel fearful of losing a client or losing your job because of the way you're conducting yourself, that fear will keep you in check. That's healthy. Um, anger uh, in an optimal range is very good. I mean, you, there's a great uh, there's a great show on Netflix called The Queen's Gambit, um, and there's oh, a I line love that show. Yeah, there, there, there's one line from it that always stuck with me. It said, "Anger is a potent spice. A pinch wakes you up. Too much dulls your senses." So, you know, for me, anger helps me and to motivates me to fix things that are broken. So if something isn't working, there's a process, there's a policy, and it's frustrating me and I get mad, I'm thinking, wait, why am I mad? This Because this thing is broken. Let me go fix this. Uh, if I if after I fix it, I still carry the anger with me, well, then it becomes toxic because now it's just this burden that I've got to carry uh, that's infecting my interactions with people. Um Ego. I mean, we all know how ego can can get you in trouble because no one likes egotistical people. But you know, let's say you're in a you're in a work situation and somebody is um, undermining to take credit for your work. Well, uh, a healthy amount of ego will push you to make your contributions known so that you're you're valued because uh, it is important to be valued. Um. Question from the audience. In addition to the blind spot you mentioned earlier about taking yourself outside of the conflict, what's another blind spot that tripped you up and helped you improve your negotiation skills? So there's a uh, there's a story in, in the book. I was um, in a lawsuit. I was the lawyer in a lawsuit, and I I'll spare you all the details, but um, I at a early lawsuit, I was very much outgunned and under, you know, uh, I, I had far fewer resources than my opponent. And um, through some, you know, through a lot of hard work and and at some point I gained the upper hand. And I was so focused on winning this lawsuit that once I actually possessed the power to do it, I wasn't willing to accept a very good settlement offer that uh, was presented to me. And um, it was my ego in a way there. Like I had, I, I invested so much time and energy to finally get to the point where I, I could actually win um, that I, not only would I not accept a settlement, the only thing I would accept was my opponent's defeat after trial. And that took me down a path where I was willing to go to trial and risk a very valuable, profitable settlement for my client um, just to serve my own 
need to win. Uh, and and I was lucky in that situation. There was a judge that in in chambers, she called me out and, you know, basically told me, you're you're being an idiot here. I can't believe you're turning this down. Uh, and that realization kind of got to me. It's like, wow, conflict really got the best of me here. Um, and coming so close to the edge and being pulled back from it gave me the wherewithal that now I get uh, when I feel my ego, when I, you know, a lot of us use these emotions like anger and self-righteousness to build ourselves up into feeling powerful when the very thing that gives us that power is, is our greatest weakness. Um, so that was one of the inflection points that I remember in my life where I thought, wow, this is a really valuable lesson. I'm going to make sure I, I never forget. And that's a good chapter in the book, by the way, and was one of my questions. So I'm glad you uh, already talked about that. Another question from the audience. Is there a point of no return that walking away is the best conflict resolution approach? Yes, um, absolutely. Uh, there, there are times when people's interests are simply incompatible. Um, they're irreconcilable. And the uh, the tragedy is that people burn so much energy getting to that realization that it's 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 uh, it's destructive and it can destroy relationships and it doesn't have to. There have been times when I have worked with people whom I like and respect, um, and and you know I've I've really spent a lot of time consciously trying to develop the skill set to understand exactly what they want and what I want, and more importantly, what they need and what I need. And if I see that that's incompatible, um, I think it's really valuable to say, hey, look, you actually need something that I simply cannot give you. And I need something you simply cannot give me. So we really don't have any common ground here. Uh, but I like you. I respect you. Um, let's just shake hands and walk away. Uh, and, you know, and the next time we we cross paths, you know, hopefully we're going to have some common ground. Uh, but absolutely, you know, I think here's a mistake that I think a lot of people make in in negotiating. Um, it's important to know what somebody wants, but it's critically important to know what they need. Because and those are two different things. Because um, if if somebody truly needs it, you can't give it to them. You do not have enough common ground to reach a resolution. Recognize that as soon as you can, and then get out. Another one of my questions that I was going to ask. <laughs> good, good. So oftentimes we get frustrated with others because uh, they haven't met our expectations. How do you not put unrealistic expectations or expect someone to act the way you want them to, but maintain a positive relationship with the person? So, yeah, this this goes right into the to the title uh, don't get mad at penguins. And there's a chapter, don't get mad at penguins because they can't fly. And I think just it's, it's, I'll, I'll, I'll give a little more foundation for that. You know, between expectation and reality is this space filled with suffering conflict. And, and the wider the space becomes the, the greater our suffering is. And the penguin analogy is really a lesson in acceptance. Um, that we just, we shouldn't expect people to do things they're not capable of, even though we may really, really want them to. 
might be really important to us. Um, and one of the challenges, and this goes to the heart of the question, how do you not expect people to do things uh, that they're not capable of, that are beyond their, beyond their abilities? Um, what makes that hard is that oftentimes it's very challenging to see someone's limitations, especially if everything else we know about them suggests that they're not limited. And that's why I talk about the penguin. So it's, what do you mean a penguin can't fly? It's a bird. It's got wings. It's got feathers. And birds with wings and feathers can fly. Uh, except that penguins can't. Flight is simply beyond their ability. And uh, you could choose to get mad at that or you can accept it. So how do you accept it when you can't? Well, I, I would say this. You cannot accept someone's limitations if you cannot see that person's limitations. If you cannot understand that they, in fact, are limited. Um, and that's where most people suffer because they have this expectation, you know, and, and some simple examples are, you know, maybe it, it's someone who's always late, no matter how important it is to you that, that they be on time. Yet you continue to expect that on this occasion, they won't be late. Um, or maybe it's someone who, you know, is chronically unhappy and injects just a little negativity, gives you a little personal jab every time you have some good news to share. Um but you continue to hope that the next time you have some good news to celebrate, uh, you can enjoy the, the moment together. And that, but if you think about it, you know that the reality is something different. Um, because the reality is if you have a chronically unhappy friend who never enjoys your successes, the reality is they're not capable of being happy for you. They're not capable of being happy for themselves. It's got nothing to do with you. Um, so the next time that happens, don't get mad. Don't take a it's not their fault. They're not capable of being happy for you. They're not making a choice. It's simply beyond their ability. Um, so the question is, how do you not expect people to do things they're not capable of? Um, when you find yourself feeling frustrated in dealing with somebody, ask yourself the question, am I angry at this person because this person is making a choice? They have the ability to do the thing I want them to do and they're just simply choosing not to, to make me upset? Or is it beyond their ability? And only you can answer that question in the context of that situation, but most people never even ask it. Most just assume they're doing this to, to make me mad. And that's not a, uh, that's not a, a valid assumption in many situations. Uh, there are four conflict traps in the book, bully trap, need to win trap, which you talked about, avoidance trap, judgment trap. What's the best way for leaders to avoid falling into these traps? And how can subordinates keep the leaders from falling into those? So there is, you know, those each of those traps is its own chapter in the book. So I'll, I'll, in, in right. respect to the time today, I won't dig in too much. But I, I, I think it is important to focus on the toxins. That we talked about earlier, anger, fear, ego, and judgment. Those, those toxins, when they're outside of their optimal range, that's what can pull you into the trap. And there are some tools to, to uh, avoid the trap altogether and to get out of them. So I know you asked like the bully trap, for example. Yeah. You know, wh wh what is the bully trap? Well, some people are just bullies because they're bullies. That's not who I'm talking about. I'm talking the bully trap is when when um, people's passion for getting things done, people's singular focus on just pushing through any barrier in their way to accomplish a worthwhile goal, 
um, they engage in behavior that can be perceived as bullying. And they don't intend to be perceived as a bully. They just are, you know, and, and by the way, we, as, as business people, you know, sometimes we're very passionate and we're singularly focused um, and our, and we may be perceived as a bully in someone else's eyes. It's never a fun moment to realize that, but it's a, it's a very valuable one. Um, so I think that uh, one thing, one tool um, to avoid the bully trap is a, dispassionate tone. You look at those situations by dispassionately making people aware of your concerns and having a reasonable conversation. I have a tool I call the shopping list voice. Um, and there's a whole scenario in the book, but you know, you can take two scenarios. Um, let's say I'm on the phone with a client who's terminating its agreement with my company because someone on my team screwed up and I'm just pissed off. So I slam the phone down I march over to this person in front of everybody. I scream at them. I say, hey, I just got the phone with the client. You sent deliverables with mistakes in them. They had to redo your work. They missed a deadline as a result. This isn't the first time you've done this. And they fired us. You know, and I just scream. That triggers a fight or flight response. Like they probably don't even process what I'm saying. Um, I, I talk about this shopping list voice. Uh, let's say you come to me and say, hey, Gabe, I'm going to the store. You want me to pick anything up? I say, sure, I want to make a cake. So could you get some eggs, milk, sugar, flour, frosting, and sprinkles? It's a shopping list voice. You get it. But apply that to this situation where there's a bully. Instead of being the bully, you can say, I just got out the phone with the client. And they said you sent deliverables with mistakes in them. They had to redo your work. They missed a deadline as a result. They said this isn't the first time this has happened. And uh, they've terminated their agreement with us. Now, the the substance of what's communicated in both those scenarios is identical. But in the first example, I probably triggered a fight or flight response and they literally couldn't process what I was saying. Where in the second example, they didn't like what I was saying, but at least they heard every word. And I wasn't being perceived as a bully. I was being perceived as just communicating factual information. Um, and another way to avoid the bully trap, I think also is to, when you do have to give really harsh feedback to somebody, use it as an opportunity to reaffirm the person. And you can say, look, this is this is horrible. It's not sugarcoated, but you're not horrible. You're actually a smart, uh, capable person who has a great future ahead of you if you want it. And my hope for you is that this incident becomes a turnaround point in your career. And that six months or a year from now, people look back on this and say, wow, they really screwed that up back then. But ever since then, they've been delivering high quality work on time with a great attitude. And I look forward to working with them on a project myself. And that's a way to overcome the bully trap, as an example. Um, <laughs> when you deal with people, what is the fastest way to figure out if you're dealing with a penguin? Um, you got to ask. You got to ask the question. Uh, I, I I promise you, because because most people never do, as I said before. And I mean, I promise you, if you just simply ask that question, um, you're going to, number one, get to the answer a lot quicker. And by asking the question, you're also going to disrupt the instinctive responses. Um, and you'll be able to navigate the conflict more effectively, even before you've determined whether or not they're a penguin. Next question we have from the audience. We're in a phase of major global conflicts and tensions, U.S.-China, U.S.-Russia, resembling similar characteristics of the Cold War. Any insights or lessons learned 
which could be deployed to change the course of escalation in such conflicts. Now you got to take Henry Kissinger's place here. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, it is interesting that the the same four or five patterns that play out in uh, in, in the workplace uh, at Thanksgiving family you know dinner tables um, also play out at the on the geopolitical stage um, at, at a global level. Uh, I think what th- th- there's an unfortunate reality, and that is that there are certain world leaders that have truly incompatible goals with um, with let's say the United States. I'll take I'll take the U.S. viewpoint, uh, and um, there are so many there there are such vastly different cultural differences between various countries um, that we are forced to the lowest common denominator. It's it's power, it's power and force, um, and you know I, I think that. Politically, before, you know, you talk about political power, the most political power comes from influence. Well, a lot of times influence comes from having the biggest stick, having the biggest gun. Uh, And, you know, I I think Teddy Roosevelt is a great, you know, he's famous for saying, walk softly, carry a big stick. You know, you don't have to yell and bluster and everything else. Just have that really big stick sitting there and no one's going to ever, you know, if it's big enough, no one's no one's going to ever do anything that's going to even cause you to pick it up. You won't have to. Um, again, the, the geopolitical conversation is many hours long, um, but individuals practice geopolitics. It all comes down to individual levels. And these toxins, anger, fear, judgment, they end to that. So they do work and they work at the in the the human interaction between two people um, is the seed of where it expands out to, you know, geopolitical parties on the global scale. Uh, Next question from the audience. Does any of your advice change if the conflict occurs via email instead of face to face? Uh, The the. Yeah. So the dynamics don't change. It's just what I think you recognize that in email, um, you're losing so much of the communication. You know, it's been said that that 90% of communication is nonverbal. And in email, you lose all of that. So um the the cold, hard uh nature of you know the 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 type print on the page, uh on the screen or the paper loses so much. There's so much that's not communicated in there that there's uh, usually a misinterpretation on the other side. And I think if you are mindful of that and you acknowledge that there's the potential for your own words to be misinterpreted, you'll probably add a few extra words in there to mitigate it. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, here's one, this isn't an email example, but I used to do a lot of negotiating on the phone, um, on conference calls. This is pre COVID. So we, we weren't on zoom. And what I found is that I would take notes during, during phone calls. And I will tell you as a, I'm going to jump back as a cross examiner in a deposition, when I'm cross examining somebody under testimony, I found that silence is is an amazingly powerful tool ask a witness a question. And if I wasn't satisfied with the answer, I would just sit there and stare at them and not make a sound. Um, people 
are really uncomfortable with silence. And if you can, I would just start counting in my mind, one, two, just to get to, just so I could deal with the discomfort of the silence. But most people on the other side couldn't last more than five or six seconds before they started talking again and giving more information. And that really helps. Well, I found that when I was on the phone with, with people that I didn't want to make uncomfortable, but I was taking notes, I would have to say to them, hey, by the way, uh, forgive me, I'm just taking notes. That's why I'm not talking. Like I would let them know, you don't need to fill the silence here. I'm not waiting for you to answer. Um, so kind of take that and apply it in an email context. Um, you know, hey, I, I don't read into this, like, I'm going to give you a really short answer. You know, uh, I can't deal with that now, but you don't begin, you know, so like someone says something in an email and you just, you're busy. So you say, I can't deal with that now. Uh, well, that alone can be like, wow, that seemed rude. That was curt. I feel offended. So I, I might say, I can't deal with that now. Sounds like a fantastic idea, but I'm just like bogged down with a bunch of other stuff. And then, you know, you kind of explain a little bit. But not the greatest example, but um, I think acknowledging that the lack of nonverbal communication is uh, it really, really filters out a lot of necessary information that the other side needs to have so that they don't misinterpret. Just be aware of that. Um, you have a variety of examples of corporate leaders using conflict in a positive way. An example was Mary Barra getting General Motors through the uh, fully ignition fiasco. Why didn't GM own it and fix it? And, and what can we learn from what Mary Barra did to make GM a better company? Sure. So just to, to give a really quick overview, GM was putting defective ignition switches into cars that were causing uh, that were causing the cars to basically turn off while traveling at high rates of speed. Um, this resulted in 124 deaths, 275 injuries, two and over two and a half billion dollars in fines. Um, and, and there was a whole investigation to what gave rise to that. Earlier that many cultures honor flawless execution above all else, and that mistakes are frowned upon and seen as badges of shame. And, and there's there's a lot of conflict avoidance. That's what was going on in General Motors. Um, you talk about fight or flight. This is flight. Um, people did not want to be the source of bad news. No one wanted to be the person to say, hey, we got a problem here. And that problem is going to require that we recall a bunch of vehicles and it's going to cost us a lot of money. Um, and that there, there are lots of reasons that, that can kind of build up to that culture, but that's those are the primary ingredients. And by the way, the real tragedy there is that there was a handful of people inside General Motors who knew for more than 10 years that they were putting defective ignition switches in the cars and they didn't say anything because of that culture. And it's like, well, how did that happen? You know, I mean, these, these ignition switches literally killed people. Well, how is it that what we assume are otherwise compassionate human beings, like how could they turn a blind eye to it? And the answer is the flight reflex. Like people instinctively run away from conflict. In fact, most people will run away from a small conflict that's immediate, even directly toward a much larger conflict that's not immediate. It's not rational. It's instinctive. And if that's not specifically addressed in a culture, it's going to run rampant. Um, when Mary Barra took over, uh, changed. Like she stepped up, she took responsibility, and she said, this problem stops with me right now. She made safety the, the focus of every decision. 
And she instituted operational features inside the organization that made it easy to initiate conflict. Um, there's a great example uh, that came out later on, a few years after this recall came to light. Um, some person working on an assembly line noticed that a, that a part was being installed improperly. And that that guy filled out what's called a speak up report. So, th so there was a report that existed. There was literally a form that was already templated. If you see a problem, fill out this form. Well, most companies don't have that form. Most people don't have that. Most companies don't have that process. General Motors did. He filled out that report. He, uh, the process was, was um, created such that that report came to light immediately. And they were able to fix that problem after a couple hundred uh mistakes were made as opposed to tens of thousands of mistakes. Save, save the company millions of dollars um, because she not only said, hey, we need to be accountable. She not only said, hey, we need she actually created operational mechanisms where it made it very easy for people to do that. Well, and she also improved their brand um, by many factors, right? Because yes. now they felt like they could trust uh, GM to make a better car and that she stood behind it. And, and you know, to handle conflict, the other side has to trust you, you know, just like in, you know, in your own personal relationships. So the other person's yelling back at you. You feel like, oh, fine, you know, screw it. I'm not going to uh, push back. It's just not worth the aggravation. But she basically showed the culture there that yes, we're open um, to change and ideas and we want people to tell us the truth. I think we have time for these last two questions. Uh, your answer regarding the expectations we have for someone causes conflicts in our lives. How do you manage the frustrations and conflicts that arise when parents feel their kids are not meeting their expectations for them, not because they won't, but because they are unable? Well, if you recognize that they're literally unable to meet the expectations um, and you continue to get mad at them beyond that, that's your problem. Like you're, you're wrong to expect to get mad at someone for not doing something they're not capable of doing. I shouldn't say you're wrong. I'll take the judgment out of it. Getting mad at them for that, getting frustrated for that is the same as getting mad at a penguin because it can't fly. It's the same as getting mad at the rain because you wanted to have a picnic outside and you made all these plans and it rained. Um, it, it just serves no, no purpose. Um, you know, the, the gap between your expectation and reality is where, is where all that suffering is. So I would close the gap. You know, once a parent, in a parent-child relationship, in either direction, um, Expectations on the person or the relationship itself, the moment that that one consciously recognizes the limitation, then they can accept it. And then once you accept it, you don't get mad. I mean, take a, you know, since we're talking about parents and child, like when a when a three-year-old child has a tantrum and screams and yells, um, you generally don't get mad at that child because you understand, well, this child's only three. Like they haven't developed the, 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 you know, they haven't understood their emotions well enough to control them. They're learning how to control them. So you don't get mad. You don't take it personally. You may get frustrated because the kid's being loud and it's annoying to hear, but you, you understand why this problem is happening. 
Uh, and then, you know, then it's a, just a, simply a question of changing how you feel about it. Now, I'll, I'll say this. A lot of people say you can't control your emotions. You can't control how you feel because your emotions are involuntary. But the truth, you absolutely have control. Now, that doesn't mean that you can choose to never feel that initial flash of anger, fear, or anxiety when, when we're triggered. But the lifespan of those emotions is measured in seconds, not hours or days. And it's entirely within our control. We can allow the instinctive response to continue. Um, uh, we can you know, focus on how this person always makes us feel angry or anxious. We go with the emotion. We let it drive our response. That's a choice. We can choose to not go with the emotion. We can choose to disrupt our instinctive fear and anger responses. Hey, Gabe, we're out of time, but can we ask you to answer this one more question from the audience? Sure. Uh, do you recommend different strategy and approach when you must go through conflict resolution with people who have a huge ego and see doing negotiation as a sign of weakness to the other side? So this is our last question. Sure. I'll say this. This is in the book too. Catering to your own ego is very costly, but catering to someone else's ego is free. So if you find that you're dealing with someone whose ego is driving the conflict, then feed that person's ego. It'll cost you nothing. Recognize that this person has a need to feel powerful. So tell them they're powerful and respectfully ask them not to use their power to hurt you. Um, and recognize that they, it's, a, it's, a, it's an internal need that they have to feel strong and, and, and to not feel weak. So I, I promise you, once you satisfy that need that they probably don't even consciously acknowledge they have to themselves, but once you satisfy that, you will find a driven person whose ego has been fed will be far more flexible and cooperative in working with you in resolving whatever the dispute is. That's the short answer. Gabe, thank you so much for taking the time. And clearly the audience really loved um, uh, listening to you about your book. I'm sure you're going to sell a lot of books to, uh, to these folks. But clearly by the volume of questions, we know you hit on a very sensitive topic here. And we appreciate you taking the time. And thanks to all of you for coming today. And we'll see you all next Friday. Everybody have a wonderful, safe weekend. Thanks for having me, Mark. That was a pleasure. Have a great weekend. Okay, you too. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.